Okay, well, am I right, Jeremy? Yep, good. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Al, if I haven't met you yet. <clears throat> I'm a member of Vine Church. Uh, I'm going to do the Bible reading, which is 1 Kings 19. I just wanted to uh, tell you a little story before that. Don't you hate it when you're in a group and some, talking about travel or whatever, and some exotic place gets mentioned and then someone says, oh, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, I think, ah. I'm about to do that to you, so, hey, we're in church, you can forgive me, yeah? Okay. In, uh, in about 2006, Kathy and I, um, actually, is Kathy, uh, Kathy was here at 9.15, she's downstairs working morning tea. Uh, Kathy and I decided that we'd go on a holiday and we we're going to go to Egypt. And so, um, <clears throat> we ended up down in um, Shamal Shank, yep, okay, right down the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. We went and saw the pyramids and all that stuff, and then we ended up at this resort, um, one of us got right into the whole Egyptian thing, as, uh, as you can see. <laughs> if you go somewhere with Cathy Stewart, she sucks the juice out of a holiday. It's a military operation because you're going to see everything. So we get to this resort and Cathy decides we've got to see Mount Sinai. And I say, oh, okay, right. So it's organised. So you drive like that, you see from Shamalshank up to Mount Sinai and St Catherine's Monastery is at the base of, of Mount Sinai. So I thought, well, at least I can get a photo of St. Catherine at St. Catherine's. So that'll be fun. All right, so we, <laughs> Kathy arranged it. 11, we've got to see the sunrise. At 11 p.m. the night before, we get into this van driven by these kind of random guys, driven at, at warp speed along a dark road. We pull up, and then there's two guys like from central casting of Lawrence of Arabia and they've got these camels. So we get on the camels and then they walk us in the dark up, up the, halfway up the mountain and then we get off and then we finish, we walk up a kind of a six foot wide path right up to the top of the mountain. And you can see there, like there's, there's the tourists. They said, oh, there's a coffee shop at the top of the mountain. I think, what? And I'm expecting Starbucks. It wasn't quite, but capitalism is alive and well just below the summit of Mount Sinai. Uh, it was so cold. We, I paid 10 bucks, I think, for two little plastic cups of instant coffee and we hired a blanket and huddled together. Now, you can see who ended up with the blanket. But uh, <clears throat> now, look, to be honest, I thought, oh, sun comes up on Mount Sinai, it'd be kind of a, maybe some kind of spiritual experience. I was just quietly looking forward to it. Thought it'd be great to sit there and, and, and see the sun come up. But by the time the sun came up and we got up to the summit, there's like hundreds and hundreds of people there. And it wasn't like it was tourists and they're just idiots um, making all this... <laughs> making, that's a polite way to put it. Um, just idiots making all this noise and running around. And like it was 2006, so there's still video cameras and, and laughing, music. And I... Kathy kind of accepted it in her usual gracious way and I just got cranky. And uh, so I sat down, my bottom lip stuck out, and this is a picture, that's my boots, as I sat down, took a photo, and watched the sun come up at Mount Sinai. Disappointed. Disappointed. Now, <clears throat> my level of disappointment is nothing, and I'm nobody, but there's another man who's been to Mount Sinai desperately disappointed, and that's the great prophet Elijah. And that's what we're reading about today in 1 Kings. Now, Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, Horeb and Sinai are the same place, just two different names for the same place. This is the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments from God. 
There's a number of mountains, but certainly within sight of this particular mountain is where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Elijah the prophet lived about 800 B, well, sort of 800s, mid-800s BC, about 850-ish. Um, he was a prophet sent to the ten northern tribes of uh, Israel. And what had happened then, the ten northern tribes, you've got Judah in the south, but the ten northern tribes in the north, and the ten northern tribes had really been led astray by their, by their leaders, by the kings, who had drifted into worshipping the fertility gods in the area. And particularly the one that comes up in this story is Baal, which means master or lord. Baal was the god of the thunderstorm. And if you think about it, it's the thunderstorms, it's rain that brings fertility. Grass grows, cattle are fed, etc., etc. Um, so the fertility gods offered wealth and prosperity and lifestyle and the way you worshipped them was having sex at temples and you can see why, you know, it was an easy sell. But it wasn't cheap. They actually had to sacrifice, and I mean literally, sacrifice their children to these fertility gods. They threw their children into the fire of these idols. They killed their children for lifestyle reasons. Ahab, the king at the time, was evil and weak. Uh, he had married Jezebel, uh, who was the daughter of the king of, the, of Sidon. Sidon was a city, a pagan city up on, the, uh, up on the coast, you can see there. And I think I can pretty safely say Jezebel was a nasty piece of work. Uh, Jezebel was absolutely committed to the worship of Baal to the point of killing the prophets uh, of the Lord, of the Yahweh, the God of Israel uh, and other nasty things that she had done. Now last week, if you were here, we looked at chapter 18, with Matt, Matt Straw walked us through that and in chapter 18 there's this massive victory that God, uh, the God of the Bible wins, answers Elijah's prayer, fire from heaven, the sacrifice is burned up, the people all nod and say, yeah, the Lord is God, um, etc. Uh, Elijah kill, has the prophets of Baal killed because he's playing for keeps. But chapter 19 is about what happens next. So with that introduction, let me just read to you now what, what happens in chapter 19, you might like to follow, 1 Kings 19, and at the end of it, make a few comments and then... What does Elijah need to learn and what should we remember or learn? And as I read this, see if you can, if you can hear the heart of Elijah. See if you can hear what's really going on for him inside. So 1 Kings chapter 19, reading from verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say... May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights 
until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose, knees have not, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Okay, quickly, a few highlights as we go. If, you want to, if you've got a Bible, you can leave it open. Ahab comes and tells Jezebel the next, like, what happened that day. He gets home, says, honey, you wouldn't believe what happened today. Huh? Uh, Mount Carmel, Elijah, fire from heaven, oh, the, he killed the prophets. Who, like, wow, the people all say the Lord is God. And what does Jezebel say? Don't bother me with a miracle. I'm going to double down on this. You tell Elijah he's a dead man. And Elijah realises that despite the miracle, the fire from heaven, nothing will change. Now, verse 3, the NIV translates that there's, he was afraid. It could be and maybe should be translated as he, when he saw this. It's not so much that he was, he was afraid and he ran for his life, but he saw that nothing would change as a result. Jezebel's still in charge, um, he, the, the nation won't change, things will go on just as before. He works out she's going to kill him and so it's time to leave. Now he heads to Beersheba, where's that? It's the southernmost city uh, in Israel, you can see there, um, it's about 160 kilometres from Jezreel, which is where Jezebel and Ahab lived. So he's a fair way away, he's, he's put some distance there and Mount Carmel, where the whole fire from heaven thing happened is not far from Jezreel as well. What does he say there? Do you notice verse 4? He says, I've had enough Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's tired but more than that I think he's, he's broken hearted. Um, God feeds him miraculously and then he travels 40 days and 40 nights. Now if, you, if you've ever read the Bible you'll know when something happens 40 days and 40 nights it's a big deal, okay? You've got what, Moses and the Ten Commandments, you've got Noah and the flood, you've got Jesus fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, this is big. And so to travel from Beersheba down to 
Mount Sinai, we've got these, yep, uh, about 400 kilometres, okay. Uh, if you drive it today, I googled it, it's 423 kilometres. Elijah couldn't Google it, he had to walk. Um, and uh, so it took 40 days, 40 nights. When he gets there, what happens? We'll have a look, verse 9. God's very gentle with him. God, hey, why does he go to Sinai? Sinai is where the nation of Israel started. It's where God gives them the Ten Commandments, where he makes a covenant with them. And now the people are turning their back on that. Elijah's gone back to the beginning, if you like. And what does he say? When he gets there, God says to him, verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? gentle and Elijah says this I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too notice he's great concerns for the glory of God it's it's your covenant your altars your prophets and I think part of the reason he's feeling so shattered is the miracles and things don't come any bigger than chapter 18 Right, you've got fire comes down from heaven, bang, and burns up everything. And, and if that hasn't changed them, what will? No, nothing. If that hasn't changed hearts and minds. And I think he's saying, thinking, we've lost. We're, we're on the wrong side of history. And I'm the only one left, or at least the only one <clears throat> standing up. The wrong side of history. And he grieves over it. Now, I wonder if you're... If you're a follower of Jesus, do you, ever, do you ever grieve over our nation? Now, I know it's not a, you can't line up Old Testament Israel and Australia. Of course not. And we never have been God's nation. But we certainly started with a great Christian heritage, if you like. Opportunity to know God, Bible freely available, all of, all of those things. And yet as a nation, we're busy walking away from that knowledge, busy cutting the foundations that we had to what built our culture. Did you notice this week, uh, the first of the information from the 2021 census, last year's census, came out, and the thing that was celebrated in the media more than anything else was that no religion as a, as a percentage has jumped up. Um, Sydney Morning Herald, abandoning God, Christianity plummets as non-religious surges in census. Woohoo! Right? That's what it was celebrated. And where we got to now, no religion's about 39%. It has jumped significantly since 2016. And my guess is for a lot of you, you're saying, well, tell me about it. I'm in the middle, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm in the middle of it at work every day. Church attendance has fallen off a cliff in the last 50 years. Uh, the way Christians or especially Christian leaders are, you know, regarded, we've got, you know, you've gone from being regarded as the do-gooders to the haters because, you know, we're apparently against love. And here's the great irony. The reason we live in such a prosperous, free, wonderful country, or the, if you like, the Western world is so prosperous and free... I think it's a very good case that it's, the, it's come out of the Judeo-Christian worldview, the one that we're so busy walking away from. And you see that from lots of different writers. Now, forgive me for kind of giving you the drink from a fire hose thing for the next couple of minutes, but here we go. Take a deep breath. 
And it's not just writers who are from a you know, particularly Christian background. Tom Holland, his book's been quite famous, Dominion. His, his thesis, he's not a Christian, and his thesis is the whole way the Western world thinks that is, it's come out of this book. It's come out of the Christian worldview, whether we realise it or not. I, I didn't quite get that one. I think, obviously, I'm not smart enough to wrap my head around it. Here's a couple of that I really did like. Vishal Mangawadi is an, uh, a Hindu man who's become a Christian and so sees things with fresh eyes. The book that made your world, he's talking about the Bible, it's a great book. Or Rodney Stark is um, Professor of the Sociology of Religion at Baylor University, The Triumph of Christianity, I'm trying to work out the content from the title. Uh, his other book, The Victory of Reason, is brilliant. How Christianity led to freedom, capitalism and Western success. The creation of wealth, freedom, etc. Very interesting book. Um, now, you, I think you can argue, and these guys do, that, okay, here's uh, eight or nine things. Freedom, the rule of law, democracy, the value of the individual, creation of wealth, science, modern medicine, social welfare, charity and compassion. The things that we all value have flowed out of the Judeo-Christian worldview. If you want a book that's a little bit more accessible, okay, um, and won't look as flash on a coffee table, right, but accessible, this one I found recently, I've been reading it. Glenn Shrivener is a, an Aussie who's now working in Christian ministry work in England and he's written this book arguing that the values that we hold together right, are Christian values it's just people don't realise that and they're disconnected from Jesus now. But he'll argue, um, what's his list? Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom and progress have all actually flowed out of the Christian worldview and are totally different to the way the ancient world saw things. Worth a read. Why are we walking away well, sadly, uh, Roy Williams has written his book, Post-God Nation. He lists many reasons, but the biggest one, he says, is the very wealth that has been created, right, that we've been able to create as a society. The wealth that we've created leads us away from God, just as Jesus said it can do. And perhaps what makes it worse is that there's many Christian leaders who are not standing up for the truth. And so you've got Christian leaders who won't stand up for the truth, who follow our culture around like a puppy and the result is, church, well, churches that do that end up tiny and ageing. I could end up in the youth group of some of them, as I've said before. Are we on the wrong side of history? Do you ever wonder that, if you're a follower of Jesus? It can feel like that sometimes, can't it? On the wrong side of history. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Elijah is quite possibly on the same, is in the same mountain, maybe even the same cave as God put Moses in, in the book of Exodus, when God appears to Moses in a special way. Notice what God says to Elijah in verse 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. <clears throat> then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And that is, what's it saying? God's in control of these huge things in nature, but you won't know God through that. 
God's not in them. He controls them, but he's not in them. How do you know God? You see the end of verse 12? And after the fire came a gentle whisper. God speaks. Now, it's a little bit hard to translate that phrase. See, the idea of thin, and then either it can mean silence or a whisper. Probably the, the whisper's right because Elijah hears it. See verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, interesting, God's very gentle in this whole thing as he speaks to his prophet. It's okay to be tired. He understands our human frailties. And then Elijah, one of the other human frailties, Elijah repeats himself exactly. He says the same thing. Your covenant, your altars, your prophets, I'm the only one left. And I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons that he's feeling so kind of beat up and discouraged, he does feel like he's the only one. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it is very hard. It is very hard to feel that you're on your own, the only one. Um, I've had a little bit of it. Just let me tell you just a trivial example. In 1992, I, I, I was, took on the role of being the chaplain to the Sydney City Roosters. Now, if you're, if you're not a rugby league fan, the Sydney City Roosters are the best rugby league team um, in the competition. Man, they were robbed on Saturday night. Anyway, that's another story. Um, uh, yeah, so I decided, you know, I got the offer, I'd say, okay, I'll be the chaplain. So I would go over to Henson Park for training and go to their games and things. And as far as I knew, I was the only Christian believer there. Their manager, Jack Gibson, uh, was very kind to me. He's a big man. But I, I'm on my own. And so we'd go to, you sit in on a team meeting with maybe 40 uh, professional rugby league players, all giants, and there's just little baldy-headed me sitting in the corner, the chaplain. Right? And there's so much testosterone in the room, you could kind of cut it with a knife, you know, cut it with scissors. Um, they treated me okay, but it was, it was a pretty lonely time. And then halfway through the season, uh, I'm sitting there in the team meeting, and, and there's a, a young guy I hadn't seen him before, came and sat beside me. And I thought, oh, that's unusual. So he sat beside me, and then he he's looked and said, Are you the, the chaplain? said, yep. He said, ah, my name's, uh, my name's Tony. I just transferred here from Western Suburbs. I've been praying about it and I thought it seemed like the right thing to do. And I remember thinking, yes, thank you. <laughs> and yeah, a Christian man and we would talk and, uh, and pray together and I cannot explain the difference that that made, just turning up knowing that he would be there. There's two of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Christian man, pastor and theologian. Uh, the Nazis locked him up and executed him just before the end of the Second World War. He wrote a book called Life Together, um, which is certainly parts of it are just brilliant. Let me read you a little bit about what he says about Christian fellowship, if you're a follower of Jesus. He says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. But if there is so much blessing and joy in a single encounter of brother with brother, forgive me, he wrote before gender inclusive language, my apologies, brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. 
It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. It's very easy to take the privilege of Christian fellowship for granted and the value of turning up. So, you know, sometimes you listen to sermons and you feel guilty. Don't do it. I tell you why. Really bad weather, right? Pouring rain school holidays, middle of winter, and you guys are here. Great work. How good's that? All right. And if you're online, well, you almost made it. We'll see you next week. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let, let, let's get on with it. I'm, I'm chewing up time. Okay. So the God who speaks, you notice it's the quiet voice. The God who speaks is the one who controls history. And you see that in chapter in verse 15. If you're not used to 1 Kings, I hope I can motivate you to keep on reading because I tell you, it's a ripping yarn. Uh-huh. Um, the Lord says, the Lord said to him, verse 15, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus, which is Syria, also called Aram, right? and then God begins to put in place his judgment on Israel. So Hazael is, my, uh, is to be, is, will, will become king of Aram or Syria, that happens in 11 chapters time, it's brutal, he, he invades Israel and there's wars and, and then Jehu, He's mentioned it comes 12 chapters later. He kills both the king of Judah and the king of Israel and then massacres the followers of Baal. It's just, it's brutal what happens. And then God understands Elijah and gives him a colleague, Elisha or Elisha. It's that quiet voice that controls history. But notice verse 18, he says, Elijah, there's some things you don't know. So he says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000 is probably like a proverbial perfect number. Seven's a perfect number, Seven's, uh, a thousand's the big number. But God's saying to him, look, I've got a job for you and there's some things that are above your pay grade. Just get on with it. And so what does he do? Well, he goes to commission Elisha or Elisha. See verse 19... I'll go through this too quickly, but I will. Okay, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with 12 yoke of oxen. Like, to have 12 oxen means the family was doing very well, thank you very much. They were pretty wealthy. Um, uh, And uh, Elisha himself uh, was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him, literally threw his mantle over him. We still talk about passing the mantle to the next person. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied, what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. When Elijah says, go back, what have I done to you? I think what he means is, man, this is a tough gig I've called you to. Like this is saying, hey, come with me and we're going to get killed by Jezebel. That's basically what he's saying. And then he says, okay, go back and say goodbye to your mum and dad. That's fine. 
Now, we read earlier on Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and here's something to think about. I won't have time to go into it properly, but in chapter 9, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, knowing he'll die on the cross, and there's three little cameos with would-be disciples. And one of them says to him, um, Lord, okay, still others said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, yes, of course, go back and say goodbye. And no, that's not what he says, is it? Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What are we meant to see? I think it is that the call to follow Jesus is even more urgent and may well be even more demanding than the call to follow Elijah. Okay, what's Elijah need to learn? Well, a couple of things. One, God doesn't need the spectacular or the miraculous. That is, I think Elijah's there thinking, we did all the miracles in chapter 18, fire from heaven, and it's, it, didn't, it didn't work. Well, yeah, miracles don't bring, usually, often, miracles don't bring real change. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been working in Christian ministry for a long time and the number of times I've wished that I could pull a miracle out of the hat, I, you know, I've been talking to guys who and say, you don't, won't believe, is that your car? I say, yep, watch this, fire from heaven, how cool would that be, right? And think, probably just as well God doesn't let me do that. Um, it doesn't work. If you've read the Bible, you see how many thousands of people left the, in the Exodus with Moses. They saw the ten plagues, they saw God open the Red Sea. How many of them made it into the Promised Land? Two. Jesus comes and does all the miracles you can imagine and they crucified him. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It necessarily, a, a miracle does not necessarily change hearts, doesn't hold belief, doesn't... So what does? Answer? It's that quiet voice. When people believe what God says, when they believe his promises, when God's spirit works in their life, that's what changes people. That's what changes people. And I guess Elijah needed to be reminded of that. And then finally, that God plays the long game. If you keep reading, you've got to read, what, 35 more years of history. It's 35 years, more or less, from when Elijah gets that message to when um, Hazael... Uh, and then Jehu come to power. And we mustn't confuse God's patience with the lack of God's interest. Okay, what do we need to learn? Let's go back to Captain Grumpy sitting on Mount Sinai, looking at his boots. After about half an hour, the crowd of idiots with the attention span of a goldfish They left, took their videos, had their laughter, wandered down the mountain. It just leaves St Catherine and myself sitting there watching the sun come up. And then, I reckon we heard something like angels singing, because I couldn't see them. And what it was, was these beautiful voices that we worked out later, it was Korean, Korean people, and singing, I didn't, I couldn't understand the words, but I knew what they were singing. I'll try and hum it, I'm the world's worst singer, here we go. Da 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 da, da 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 da
how great thou art. Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all... And you couldn't see them. You could just hear this, this singing on the mountain. And it was like, it was surreal. Now, later on, on as, we, as we walked down, we saw about 30 Korean people pass us. But it was just, it, I will remember it until the day I die. And what did it, I've been thinking about it this week. Elijah thought that he was on the, I think, Elijah thought he was on the wrong side of history. And then almost 3,000 years later, in that same place, there's a group of people from a country that he could not have heard of singing the praises of his God. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because eight centuries, in the patience of God, eight centuries after Elijah, around Lake Galilee, a young man begins to preach and he preaches about the kingdom of God, his kingdom, and he says his kingdom will start small like a mustard seed, just a group that you can speak to without a PA, a handful of disciples, and yet one day it will fill the world and for those who trust him, it will renew creation and give them eternal life. Now, numbers don't, just because it's big numbers doesn't mean something's true. Right? But I want to talk to you about which way is history going. And is, was he right about the mustard seed growing, etc. Here's some stats. You just go to Pew Research and they do kind of worldwide research on social trends, etc. Pew Research will tell you, currently there's 2.2 billion people identify as Christians in the world. By 2050, that'll get to 2.9 billion. That's one in three people on the planet. Now, ticking the box in a census, say, Christian, it's reasonably meaningless because 48% of Australians still say they're Christian, etc., which is a very, very rubbery figure. So let's drill down a little bit. Rodney Stark, um, the professor that I quoted earlier in those books, put out a book, The Triumph of Faith, 2015. It's the results of worldwide Gallup poll surveys. Now they found, similar to Pew Research, that currently there's 2.2 billion people around the planet who say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. They drilled down further and asked, have you been in a place of worship, basically a church, in the last week? What did they find? 1.1 billion people. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a handful of us here today, but we're one of, or part of, over a billion people that will meet to sing the praises of Jesus and hear his words. Now, where will that happen? It's not growing in the, quote, Western world, in the rich and prosperous Western world. We're busy walking away from that heritage. Where's it happening? In the global south in South America, uh, in Asia, in, um, in Africa. Philip Jenkins, who uh, was also a professor at Baylor University in Texas, uh, wrote the book The Next Christendom. Here's what he says in an interview about it. In the global south, the areas that we often think of primarily as the third world, there are huge and growing Christian populations. Currently 480 million in Latin America, 360 million in Africa, 313 million in Asia, compared with 260 million in North America. You, you won't hear these stories in our media. They'll celebrate 39% no religion, but this growth in, in the rest of the world just doesn't, it doesn't fit the narrative. I don't think it's a conspiracy of silence. I think it's they just don't see it. What about Australia? Well, it may be that that quiet voice that 
controls history may, may judge our country. How? By letting us keep wandering away from God or running away really from God. I hope it doesn't happen but that may be what God decides. I hope not. It's above my pay grade. But what I can say, three quick things. One, the call to follow Jesus is even more urgent than to follow Elijah. And for you young guys, it's probably going to be a tougher gig than it was for me 40 years ago. But that's all right, you'll shine even brighter in the darkness. Two, the number of, I think the number of genuine, born-again followers of Jesus in Australia hasn't declined. Nominal Christianity is gone, but genuine believers, I think much the same number. Christendom, that is the assumption of the default religion being Christianity or Christianity being the chaplain to the government, I think that's gone and it may not be a bad thing. And then finally, churches, well, churches that hold to the truth, churches that teach the Bible and don't compromise and churches where people love others and make people welcome and are prepared to change, in most places, they're not just doing okay, they're thriving. Are we on the wrong side of history? No. It's that quiet voice that controls where history's going and we need to trust those words. You pray with me? That's right. That's right. Let's pray. Amen. We pray with me. Our Father, we ask please you'd help us to listen to you and to trust your words that we have uh, as you've spoken to us. We pray for our nation. We ask simply that you might bring millions of men and women to know the Lord Jesus and to find the love, a life and love and freedom that he gives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.